When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and today I'm speaking with Wes Alwyn, co-host of the popular philosophy podcast, The Partially Examined Life. The Partially Examined Life, or PEL, is one of my personal favorite podcasts. I've been a regular listener for about nine years. PEL episodes have accompanied me on countless road trips, flights, long hikes, and bike rides. Each episode, Wes and his co-hosts, and an occasional guest, read a selection from a work of philosophy, and proceed to engage in a civil debate peppered with wit and wisdom. The hosts do an excellent job of being sensitive to the non-expertise of their listeners, providing useful summaries and incisive perspectives. PL truly is the gold standard of academic podcasting. Wes, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me, and thanks for that introduction. Um, I like I like praise. So <laughs> of course, well, I'll, I'll you know there'll be there'll be more down the line if you, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. PL really really is uh, you know fantastic, and I'm sure many of of our listeners are probably familiar with it. Uh, and you know, it's definitely a podcast that has evolved a lot over the years. So you know, before talking about partially examined life, I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, what your interests are and how you got involved in in doing academic podcasting. Sure. Um, well, currently I'm a therapist and I've been a director of a transitional home for the mentally ill for quite a few years. And now I'm transitioning to, um, private practice. Um, and I'll be getting, a um, finishing up work to become a psychoanalyst. Basically my orientation is psychoanalytic. Um, how did I get from philosophy to there? <laughs> it's a long, it's been a long road. I uh, I went to a small liberal arts school called St. John's, um, kind of the great books program. And then I um, took a year off and worked in uh, politics, actually, strangely enough. And then I went to grad school. Um, and I, for various reasons, I, at that time, you know, academia didn't feel like a good fit and I was confused about what I really wanted to do. So I ended up leaving with just a master's degree in philosophy. And then I worked, um, I worked as a writer, I worked in tech. Um, uh, and then in 2008, I think it was Mark, Mark Linsenmeyer from, so I went to grad school with, and he was my roommate uh tracked me down and said hey you want to start a podcast and i kind of knew what podcasts were i wasn't really listening to any hadn't really taken off that much but i and i said yes i mean just just to talk about just just to have something that would make me read and talk about philosophy again so and um so we didn't start it with any idea that it would ever be as popular as it was um and um and then after a few years it 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 became quite popular and um uh in the meantime i was you know i had 
developed an interest in psychoanalysis in grad school. I was going to do my Freud. I mean, uh, Nietzsche was kind of my focus, and I was going to do a dissertation on Nietzsche and Freud. And um, I, you know, one of the other things I was doing while I was being a writer, I was taking classes at a psychoanalytic institute. Um, and then a few years ago, in earnest, I thought, okay, you, you know, I had, and at that point, I didn't. I was toying with the idea of being a clinician, but I didn't, you know, I never committed. And then a few years ago, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And so I, I did, <laughs> I jumped into the clinical side of things. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's my story. I think, uh, you know, you and your, and your co-hosts, uh, you're the, you definitely take, tend to take a different approach. Can you talk a little, you mentioned Mark, can you talk a little bit about your your other co-hosts, what the dynamic is like, uh, and just a little bit about the sort of overall structure of the podcast. So, uh, so there's four of us now. Originally, there were three of us. It was me, Mark, and Seth. And Mark had Seth. I, we also went to grad school with Seth, and um, Mark actually to find a third person. He he emailed quite a few people that we went to school with actually, actually. Um, and then Seth was the one who ended up showing interest, which is good. Cause I think the chemistry between the three of us, um, is good. I think that's what part of what makes the show. Um, although I wouldn't know how to describe it exactly. I think Mark is more irreverent. Um, and Seth is more, uh, I don't know, compassionate and wise, maybe. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what I am, but I, um, you know, it, it's someone called me once in an email that they sent to us or something. Someone wrote something where they praised us in different ways. And I was called like benevolently, benevolently avuncular or something like that. I, I don't know. But um, so, but I do think, and then Dylan arrived, which, you know, pretty pretty early on but after i think we'd been doing it for a few years and he has a phd in physics um but he was a tutor at st john's the school that i went to which is sort of requires every professor tutor means professor there and it requires every professor to teach everything and so um and he had an under he has an undergraduate degree in philosophy so um so i think um and then so so dylan adds um you know, it's hard for me. Maybe you can tell me what you think about the dynamic after this, but um, it's hard for me to to speak to all of it. But I think it's again, it's part of what makes the show is is our chemistry, and I guess there's a fair amount of humor. I think over the years we've gotten more focused on the text, and we've been talking to each other for so long. It's probably become harder to listen to um, the show. You know, as far as the structure goes, the the way we do the show is we choose a text and we read it and come prepared to discuss it. We don't do too much discussion on the back end about what we're going to do. We sometimes will do a little bit, but we don't, you know, um, so the conversation is quite unstructured. We tried to do things over the years, like try to summarize the text up front, experimenting with that. And that's never taken off. Um, now we do little introductory remarks. Um, we tend to have a more informal conversation at the beginning for the first part. And um, 
and then we get do more closer textual analysis in the second part. That's the that's the way we do things now. It wasn't always exactly that way. So, um, and and we're doing part threes now. So we record we record for two. So we used to do these long three hour recordings. <laughs> now we do a two separate recordings, one two hour recording and one one hour recording, and we break the first recording up into two parts, which are public, and the, the third one is now behind a paywall. But um but yeah that's so that so the show is you know quite freeform there's no lecture you know various we're we're all show up with varying levels of preparation for any given episode depending on our interests i think there's on some episodes someone might do a bit more talking than others if they're you know happen to be the most prepared but in general um you know, it's a four-way seminar discussion at where we explore the text and we have a lot of things that we haven't quite thought through, so we're trying to think it out in real time, and and I think that's part of the attraction of the show. So, Yeah, this, the show was, was initially recommended to me by my high school physics teacher. Um, I one day... I don't even remember like where I got it, but I brought the uh, a copy of the gay science to like my physics class, and I just had it on my desk. And he like picked it up and said, "Oh, you should listen to an episode, <laughs> this episode about the gay science." And at the time in high school, like you know, people don't really aren't really into philosophy, so it was this really exciting thing to discover because you know I could finally hear people talk about philosophical ideas, um, and. Yeah, that episode in particular, the on on the gay science is one that I've actually listened to a few times because I just enjoy it so much and I found mm. it really really fascinating. Um, and yeah, as a far, as far as like you know the different, I think you know I, yeah I I think you got your your co-hosts right. Um, I think uh, yeah you you definitely what you you're very good at whenever there's a there's any sort of uh, periodic lull at bringing bringing it back to the text or to you know sort of some sort of a uh, key core issue that actually is like you know the underlying uh maybe like underlying problem in mm. the uh in the text uh and i think that that you know the, the other thing that i am curious about is you know for new books network uh episodes you know the, the structure of them is that a someone will write a book you know typically like an academic monograph and then the interviewer will ask them about it uh and it's very much, uh, you know, with the sort of the purpose of, of getting these sorts of summaries. Uh, and I think that w whereas your podcast, it focuses more so on the kind of discussion aspects of it, kind of letting people see the sort of behind the scenes that people, uh, you know, academics or scholars might be having certain debates that they might be having. So you have a tendency on the show, not you in particular, but all of you to, to go out and discuss topics that are sometimes very controversial. You know, how do you how do you go about that? Do you have any concern or worry about sometimes dealing with certain topics or is it just like, eh, who cares? Like we'll deal with, we'll talk about anything. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Cause I never thought of it that way that we've been that courageous, <laughs> but um, we did just do an episode on abortion, which is, you know, it's something that Mark and I taught. We were TAs for, there's this class contemporary moral problems at the University of Texas, and it's probably like the equivalent equivalent of that in every philosophy department. 
um, and um, abortion, gay marriage, those sorts of topics. Um, so we had already had experience with the readings and, and discussing this with students. And But I think years ago when we were doing that, it was probably a lot less controversial to even have those sorts of discussions than it, than it is now. So like reading papers, um, even, you know, reading papers, even making the arguments, I think to a lot of people, it's sort of irrelevant. It's like, why are these philosophers wasting their time on these abstractions when there are urgent things going on, you know, life and death and people's health and all that stuff. So, um, and similarly, we've done shows on white privilege and um, uh, social construction, and um, which, you know, which I have a lot of skepticism about that concept, um, which I'm not sure it came out in the show. So there, there are things that I, you know, would, would, we've always been somewhat reticent. So these things we do have discussions about, we're not all that courageous. And we think about whether we can do it in a way that, you know, we don't just want to have the standard political debate. We want to try to talk about it at a deep level and model that for people, let people see what it would be like to have that kind of discussion. Um, and it's not always easy to, to do that. Um, and I have, you know, I have a fair bit of reticence myself about doing these shows. Um, and in some cases, you know, I say, well, I don't know if we really should do it because I don't know if we can have an honest conversation about that given the political, political climate. Um, now, that being said, I think it's always not as big a deal. Um, so I think, it, like, I, think, I think it's a bigger deal going into it than it actually turns out being, you know, there some people might be pissed off, but by and large, audiences, you know, our audience, and I think people in general are actually, you know, they're, they would love to see this, more of this type of discussion, right? Because it's, because it's generally polite. We could, you know, we edit out all the <laughs> antagonism. No, just kidding. So it's polite, it's respectful, um, and we're trying to think things through. So. I think a lot of people are very gratified by that. It's not it's not common with politically controversial uh, controversial issues. Did that get at the, the whole yeah. question? I think okay. Yeah, I think like you know, I recently listened to your your discussion on representation and this notion that if you're talking about a particular topic, uh, that might you know involve someone that isn't you know that is a different identity than than you or Mark or or you know Seth. Uh, you know, for example, like on the abortion debate, you know, whether or not it's good to have, you should have a woman uh, participating in it. I think the thing that was just interesting to hear about the conversation that's, I think, very unique is the way in which, you know, you all spend the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And this is typical, I think, of basically every conversation you have trying to give a variety of perspectives and giving, trying to give as strong a perspective as possible to, you know, people that might disagree with you. And I think that that sort of modeling was really interesting for me to hear, um, you know, and especially when I, you know, just going back to imagining, you know, pic pic picturing myself as a high school student first discovering this, it was just mm -hmm. not something that I was used to hearing. 
because normally it's like people have a perspective, they share their perspective, they fight and they argue if they disagree, they disagree and that's it versus like taking this concerted effort to like try and reconstruct, you know, someone's argument that you might disagree with. Uh, yeah, I think it would be very helpful. This is the way I think rhetoric used to be taught in ancient times. They would make you argue the the opposition's point of view first, right? You, you, were, you, were, you were supposed to be able to argue both sides of the question, which is part of what led to accusations of, you know, sophistry and making the weaker argument seem the better and the better argument seem the weaker, those sorts of things that got Socrates himself in trouble. But um, but yeah, I think with with that particular episode, Mark and I strongly disagreed. He actually, we have a Slack channel where we communicate about, you know, logistics for the show. And he said, it's absurd that Wes doesn't think we should have a woman on the show for the abortion episode. <laughs> I got pissed off and then we decided to have this little debate. And, um, and I've been writing and thinking about it a lot. But yeah, part of what I do when I write about it is I... Um, you know, my, my gut instinct and the thinking I've done on it, you know, is I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of flaws to the, what I think of as the representationalist point of view, but I can't, it, that starts out as a kind of a, it, you know, there's always more thought, thought to be done about it. And I, um, so I always start out by trying to give the strongest possible version of the view that I think I oppose. And sometimes I come close to convincing myself. It's kind of disappointing. I'm like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I've been, maybe I'm wrong actually. Uh, but, um, and, um, you know, it always turns out there, you, one is wrong about certain aspects of the argument. So in that particular show, I showed up, um, I think I started out by giving what I thought were, was a strong, you know, I started out by giving the opposing point of view and then Mark, tried to give my my point of view so um so that and I, and I think yeah if people th th that would be a great concept for a show actually just th that could be a whole show yeah you take to two people show about politics but have them argue the opposing point of view with each other yeah that would be really interesting i i think i, I mean i i do feel that that you do that on the partially examined life all the time that like it's frequently sometimes difficult me difficult for me to tell and not in the sense of like people being opaque, but it's difficult for me to tell what people are thinking because you're going, you're spending so much time trying to give the other point of view. Um, yeah. Which I, I just I think that on yeah. any political show where I have a strong political opinion, I always start out by giving the strongest representation of the thing that I don't quite agree with on, on more philosophical episodes. I'm rarely, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm usually a fan of every, almost everything I read and I'm, it's not a struggle for me to see, um, to enjoy it. You know, there's been rare occasions where I'm not, where I, I dislike something and, um, and then make that known. But for the most part, whatever, um, you know, whether it's Leibnizian monads or, you know, Barclay and skept um, idealism, I see the grain of truth and I'm excited about it. I, I like, um, creative speculation about the yeah. nature of things wherever it goes. So, yeah. So you've been doing, how long has Partially Examined Life been running for? About 15 years? I don't know. I'm just... Since 2009, I think we 
Our first yeah, so episode was April 2009. Yeah. So 13, 13 years. Because I, I think when I first started listening, there was about 100 episodes already. Um, and, you know, that might have, I don't know if that, that math checks out. Um, I don't remember exactly. It's, you know, it's all so far in the past. Um, but, you know, I think just to, you know, for the listeners uh, to get a sense, like a, a lot of the, the, the texts that you do are, you do classic works in philosophy. You also do modern class, you know, modern philosophical classics, works that are like, more so in the political theory category, not necessarily, you know, purely philosophy, but have some sort of philosophical ideas um, to them. And, you know, you, you've basically been, been putting your ideas and thinking out there for the past 13 years on this material. What is the sort of experience for you as a, as a thinker, just in developing your ideas on things? You know, how does, how is it putting your ideas out there basically every single week and getting that feedback from, from listeners so it's an inter- it's been an interesting process because I'm required to reread a new text every two weeks now and prepare it, you know, and, and, and there was a phase where I was like spending all my time just doing <laughs> preparing for the show and then I'd be so I'd be intensely preparing, do recording, and then I'd be on to the next thing, even though, you know, like with Hegel, I would just, uh, you know, I'd love to continue focusing on Hegel, and I'm I'm actually reading Robert Brandom's like 900 page commentary on Hegel right now. But um, Spirit of Trust, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, have you look, read, looked at that? <laughs> I I read the introduction, and I was like, the, this. The introduction is really hard. Like, don't judge it on the introduction. It's it's you yeah. know, read the other stuff first, and then I yeah. I sent it to a friend of mine who's getting a PhD in philosophy with the hope that he might look at it and tell me what's in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah no it's really great it's really interesting and um but um but yeah so and I, so i'm kind of ripped away from hegel to do something else um and um seth once called it like a baton death march through the history of philosophy <laughs> just, and so there are good things about that bad things about that you know we don't become scholars in any particular area but we are getting a nice breadth of things and and when it comes to actual you know we do deep readings of the text as deep as possible we can have can within the given time so it's not just curse a cursory overview so i feel like 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 i'm gratified to have the structure some kind of structure that'll help me continue my philosophical education basically that's the way i feel about that and um you know as far as a dialogue with fans you know we get we get regular emails um and i've become friends with fans including someone by the way who showed up to our meeting with a a um copy of nietzsche's gay science that was just annotated from the first page to the last with underlinings, writing, everything. It was, it was funny. And this fan, she actually had a spreadsheet of uh, every episode with ratings and color coding and summaries. And so, um, but yeah, I've, yeah. So I've become friend, you know, and I had a friend who unfortunately passed away recently, but um, who we would take regular walks and, and, um, talk about these things with and it was very um you know helpful to me gratifying to me so um i don't get in regular to you know i don't have regular email correspondence i reply to every email i get um 
but um, it doesn't usually lead to, you know, kind of discussion. We, we've, we've tried to do some of that. We tried, we tried to, you know, I used to be more active in the, like the comment section. I used to post more on our blog and I'm going to try to, you know, it, it just takes me a long time to write things. So I'm writing up my, my views on representation. That'll go on wesallen.com, but I'll put it part of it on the partial examined life. But, um, but I would say that, you know, we, you know, one of the things we try to do with the site is build a back end with the forum and things like that where people could uh, have their own conversations. We had something called Not School. Um, they could even make their own recordings. We had these things called after shows where we did have, you know, more dialogue with fans. It's, it's become less over the years um, because it's time consuming. That's really the only, the only obstacle to, to all that so but um but yeah it's it's been helpful to get you know we get feedback and we get a lot of suggestions so when people will um inform us you know give us ideas on what to read and sometimes it's stuff i haven't actually even heard of if it's if it's more contemporary philosophy it's like okay this is this is great yeah so. do you have a particular favorite episode I don't, I mean, I, I don't listen to it <laughs> well, I used to have to listen to it because we edited, it. we did the audio editing ourselves. but, um, maybe a favorite, it, favorite reading or, you know, a memorable conversation, regardless if you listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, and I forget, you know, it's like, I, it's, I, I, every two weeks it's like I've reset myself and I've completely forgotten, but Hegel was a big deal for me that, you know, so um there's a lot of them that are that are highly you know i think highly influential on my thinking and change my thinking but but i went i i did a lot of preparation for hegel and i made some progress as far as my understanding and i and i you know i've long been like a big kant person it was nietzsche and kant in grad school and and german idealism i just have this affinity to but i didn't have the strongest grasp of Hegel. I mean, I have memories when I was in my 20s of lying around with like the Cambridge companion to Hegel and reading essay after essay. But, you know, that, that <laughs> didn't mean much when it came time to getting back to the phenomenology. So, um, but there's a lot of, you know, Malebranche recently, I was like, really pleasantly surprised. Um, and, um, you know, I could point to to many, many conversations that we've had that are, um, you know, even Erasmus we did recently. So it is really hard for me to pick out, um, to pick them out. There's so many that I, um, you know, the the con each conversation usually, uh, you know, and and reading usually has a quite an effect on me. You know, it just it it alters my overall picture of things so um but yeah you know a, lo a lot of people i know some people i know are really interested in philosophy some people have no interest at all uh you know what what case would you make to people that have no interest in philosophy why they might want want to read it or you know i feel like uh the sort of the joke of the partially examined life uh if i'm remembering correctly is you know at one point thought of doing philosophy and then thought better of it 
Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's your well, uh, weak case for <laughs> why you should read philosophy? <laughs> what I would say to them is that they're not being honest. They do want to study philosophy. Everyone wants to be a philosopher. That's another essay I want to write. Um, and the reason why I say that is everyone is very keen to argue about politics and morals and what's just and what's not just. That's a, you know, running conversation and that, that for most people, and it's something, um, uh, people will often feel a lot of pressure to talk about, you know, if they know better, they try to avoid it and <laughs> polite discussion, but, but, um, but yeah, so it, I think, um, and then the other, you know, the other aspect of that, I just, I've had jobs, more corporate style jobs, and I don't know your background or if you've had that experience, but it's the culture of having meetings and reading like, um, uh, like who stole your cheese or these other sorts of, you know, self-help business books. People invest a lot of time in, in meetings that aren't really directly related to being productive, but they invest a lot of try- time into trying to convince themselves that what they're doing as an organization is meaningful and um, that there are profound things going on. This is the other aspect in which I think people um, are always trying to be philosophers. They're trying to, um, they're very interested in, ethics and politics and they're very interested in meaning right whether they can find that religiously and through many many other ways in the arts and but even in corporate settings people are are engaged in that activity so what i would say to people is you know you're already doing it you already want to do it just stop lying to yourself about it and get better at it and if you know if you have the time um what i won't say you know there is, is it going to make you a better person? I think that's an argument a lot of people want to hear, right? So there's a current, like, stoicism movement, for instance. Um, or is it going to be either make you a better person or heal you or um, uh, have therapeutic effects, right? Those are all possibilities. And I don't I don't think, you know, and I, and I think that's, those are real possibilities, but I don't think that's necessarily going to, going to happen. Um, I think, you know, the me, the adding meaning to one's life, I think that's the surest bet, you know, as solving, as far as solving problems a therapist might solve, it's not as much of a bet, but stoicism, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are involved in that today and using that, trying to use that therapeutically. But, you know, I understand why, uh, a lot of people don't wouldn't have the time or or patience for it, but but I still I, I think the idea that people are not actually interested in it, which I think you know a lot of people think that I don't think they're again I don't think that's I don't think they're being fully honest with themselves about philosophy, and I think that's why you see so much antagonism <laughs> towards philosophers, at least in social media, from what I've seen. Um, and uh, philosophy has a bad a bad reputation, but I think part of that is, um, uh, well, it has a bad reputation among some people, but part of that I think is just the, um, the, the desire to, to, to do it in a way, but the, um, 
but the unwillingness to put in the effort, let's say. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I generally think that you're correct that people want to, are interested in philosophy. They just don't necessarily know that they are in interested in it or they're approaching it from an angle that's a little, you know, maybe different than like how someone who's just like fully invested in philosophy might be approaching it. Uh, yeah. And there's also, you know, there's a, there can be gatekeepy aspects to philosophy. It's really hard to like, you know, open Kant and have any idea what he's talking about unless you have, you know, someone yeah. to like point you in the right direction or tell you like, Oh no, no, don't start with that. Start with this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a, the barrier. Yeah. The learning curve and the barrier to entry are, can be high. And, um, but you know, with, with, as far as majors, I think they've done lots of research on this and there's no, you're no better off getting a business made being yeah. a business major than you are a philosophy major. Um, uh, you know, philosophy majors go on to be lawyers or anything they want really. So, but, you know, and you're reminding me, of course, there's another argument to be made for studying philosophy um, in undergraduate, at least, you know, is just the sharpening your critical thinking skills and debating skills. And obviously you, you're, um, it's very handy. It's very, ha especially if you're a lawyer. My nephew was a philosophy major and he just gave oral arguments before the Georgia Supreme Court. So. Wow. <laughs> And uh, he did a great job, and it's not an easy environment. <laughs> no. But so it helps to build some chops, you know, um, philosophically before you're you're doing anything like that. So. Yeah, definitely a lot. Like I, you know, something that every single time I'm thinking about a lot of times, like any sort of legal issue or political issue, it's like just continual return to like you know Bentham versus Kant or Mill, and just mm. these frameworks are like unavoidable. Are just Un yep. incredibly unavoidable uh and you know it's just it's it's kind of remarkable like i literally thought i literally can't escape the trolley problem no matter how much i <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I, I i still have not solved it um never will nobody will it's impossible yeah <laughs> uh, you you mentioned that you're doing some of your own writing do you want to talk a little bit about that like what, what you're doing um and you know this sort of turn that you've that you've mentioned towards psychoanalysis in recent years yeah um the writing that i'm doing i um so i am thinking a lot about discourse um so like i'm trying to think in um philosophically about sort of culture war type of stuff um so that includes free speech and problems of free speech or what i like after Mill, I would prefer to call it freedom of discussion and the very, very deep philosophical difficulties that go along with that, some of which are are, are kind of evident in Mill's On Liberty. Um, uh, he alludes to some of these problems um, but doesn't go deeply into them. But, you know, one of the problems he alludes to, well, he's, a, he's Mill is all about cancel culture and its effect on free speech. That's, he's not worried about government censorship. He's worried about social coercion, as he puts it. So um, in light of that, and because I was a big fan of Mill and On Liberty, I thought um, that's worth, that's something worth thinking about deeply. Um, and then identity politics and representation and um, 
and some of this connects to Orwell, who I'm a big fan of. So I've been writing about writing an essay on the meaning of doublethink. Like, what is doublethink really about when you break it down? So, now will any of these essays see the light of day? <laughs> I don't know. I've been I've done a lot of writing, and it's all under you know lock and key because it takes me a very long time to write and think these things through. Because I'm I'm really trying to think through the problems. Um, and the more you try to think them through, the more thorny they get. Um, but that's so that's part of what I'm doing. I would like to, at some point, write about humor, philosophy of humor, a book on tragedy, um, a book on the concept of interpretation. This applies both to literature and psychoanalysis. And um, and then the you know as far as the turn to psychoanalysis goes. Um, it's kind of a an accident. Um, I, uh, you know, as as I said, I was interested in Freud because of Nietzsche. So I'm interested in, you know, part of my interest in these political issues is uh, I'm interested in political psychology. So um, and um, moral psychology, you know, as as per Nietzsche. But um, and psychoanalysis was a good way to to deepen that um i came to it really through the works of karen horney which my father introduced me to i met my father when i was 22 oddly enough and then he had these psychoanalysis books lying around and i became interested and i have two sisters who are one's a psychoanalyst another one's a therapist with a lot of psychoanalytic training and um so um you know, and then I've been in my own analysis for a long time, and so that's how I that's how I became interested. It's kind of a weird if you it's you know of course there's a lot of natural crossover, um, especially with you know con continental philosophy. There's a lot of you know psycho psychoanalysis is a big thing in continental philosophy, but um, but it is a very so it's very theoretically rich for you know for philosophy people who are listening who haven't done much it's you know it's theoretically very interesting and complex but it's also very speculative um um and it's weird right so if you're reading freud and you're reading about castration and things like that it's it's almost it's it's weird and and intuitively unappealing and maybe repugnant in other ways and so i um it's been an interesting uh, journey for me trying to uh, get beyond that initial feeling of something being quite alien um, and uh, trying to figure out what it you know what it ultimately means so I, I try to I, I, I do think of it as like a ultimately an extension of virtue ethics I think it's a sort of an applied virtue ethics like stoicism which really you know CBT is also a big thing these days, and it's really applied stoicism. So I, I see um, psychoanalysis as more in the uh, tradition, you know, more in the Socratic tradition somewhat, or, or maybe um, uh, Epicurean. Because um, really what happens with the virtue ethics is it becomes more focused on the therapeutic, right? E even with Aristotle, right, you're already moving in the direction of a therapeutic focus, a focus on virtue, habit, character, things that can't easily be changed through just reasoning, through just thinking. 
Um, although, which is not to say that reasoning can have an effect, but so, um, and stoicism itself, of course, is a therapeutic, is a therapeutic practice. So I, I see them as, is, you know, I see it as a, as complementing the, my interest in philosophy. But. Yeah, I think that, that makes, you know, tons of sense. My, my, in undergrad, my engagement with psychoanalysis was always in, was in social theory courses. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we, you know, they throw on, you know, read civilization and discontents and also read, you know, uh, genealogy, morality, and, uh, you know, go together pretty nicely. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Shocker that Freud somehow didn't read this stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. He claims true. not to have read Nietzsche. I think, yeah. I don't know if, if we really know what the truth is on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Wes, thank you so much for being a guest on, guest on the New Books Network. Uh, you know, people uh, should really check out Partially Examine Life. Uh, it, it just is so much fun to listen to. And I think really, as far as uh, as academic podcasts go, very unique uh, and, and worth checking out. Uh, and and you said just to... you. you People can find your writing at wesalwin.com. So that's yep. Wes, and then Alwyn is A-L-W-A-N. Yep. And it's 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 rare, but <laughs> so if you subscribe, <laughs> subscribe for free. Okay, eventually, you know, I've put a few things up, but eventually. Is it through Substack? Sub- 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 yep. Yeah. I You know, I think it's actually better for Substack. I, uns- I unsubscribe to every Substack that posts too often anyways, because it floods my inbox. Yeah, so exactly. I think that's actually better. That's uh, yep. But yeah, thank you so much for being a guest. Okay. Thank you.